Hi, everybody. Welcome to Verses from the Void, your twice-monthly foray into the world of horror poetry. Uh, today on the show, we have Sarah Tantlinger. Uh, Sarah is the Bram Stoker award-winning author of The Devil's Dreamland, poetry inspired by H.H. Holmes. Her other books include Cradleland of Parasites, Love for Slaughter, The Devil's City, co-written with Matt Corley, and the Stoker-nominated novella To Be Devoured. She also edited the anthology Not All Monsters, which features stories by women in horror. She graduated from Seton Hill University with a BA in English Literature and Creative Writing, and later with an MFA in Writing Popular Fiction. She is an active member of the Horror Writers Association and also co-organizes the Pittsburgh HWA chapter. Uh, in Mi'kmaq, we like to say Jalasi, which means welcome, come in and sit down. So Jalasi listeners and Jalasi Sarah, how are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great. Yay, that's awesome. Yeah, it's so nice to have you on here. Um, and we finally have a chance to chat. Um, I know that we've shared a TOC or two by now. And uh, yeah. you recently edited Chromophobia, which listeners, full disclosure, I have a story in. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that's two anthologies now, I think, that you've edited, right? Yeah, that was my second one. So I'm I'm really excited for this one. I hope people pick it up. I think it's just a lot of fun to read through. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept. Um, for anyone not familiar, it's uh, stories that are like related to color, right? Yep. Yeah. So yeah. just inspired by color. And we really just wanted people to take that in any direction they wanted to. It's all women in horror, too. And I think women are kind of like specifically in tune with colors, too. Like we just kind of react really viscerally to things like that. So it, it definitely shows in these stories for sure. Yeah, it was, it was such an interesting thing. Uh, with with anthologies, in my own experience writing, like sometimes uh, an anthology call will inspire me to write and sometimes I already have something that fits. So it depends. But this one was really fun to kind of take some ideas that I'd already been thinking about and pull it out into the world of color and really emphasize that aspect. So Thanks yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Thank you for your wonderful story. I love yours. You're like, I think yours was the only one that did something with like music, too, which I really liked. So thank nice. you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's because also like I have synesthesia and I thought that everybody had it. And I didn't know that like being able to imagine very vivid scenes listening to music was a form of it. Oh. So I would talk to people about this experience and they'd be like, what? That doesn't happen to me. I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. I was reading about that a while ago because I, you know, I'd heard the word, but I wasn't completely sure what all it involved. And it's it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to me, it just seemed like a natural connection, but I'm not I'm not trying to pimp my own story. <laughs> no, it's okay. I, I, <laughs> I, I just um yeah, I was wondering about your editing process and um, what your experience of, as an editor kind of brings to your poetry writing process. And how oh, that's it might a differ. good question. Um, well, editing anthologies is such a its own beast. It really takes all of your time and your energy. So you have to be just really, really want to do it, especially if you're going to read through slush piles, which I do. Um, though I don't really like the term slush piles and just submissions, but the catchy phrase that we all tend to use, but um, yeah, you really just have to dedicate all your time to it. And I think, again, it's so different from writing poetry, but I think editing anthologies has definitely taught me a lot about patience and just really trying to write the best that I can myself and just learning that there's just so many different ways to tell stories and so many different topics to tackle, which you can definitely put into poetry. So even though they're very different, different aspects of being a writer, I think if you take the time to edit something, edit an anthology call or be like a part of a, um, I think a team of readers reading submissions, you really learn <laughs> just how to look for good writing. And then that in tune can help you become a better writer. Yeah, for sure. I think that it's a really wonderful way if, if people can do it and they're interested in it, if they can um, get kind of attuned to what the writing community is like broadly and just um, see what different things people are writing out there, what's in the zeitgeist, all that good stuff. Yeah, and then you end up seeing like all these kind of maybe themes or tropes that 
a lot of people are using that wasn't even in the submission call, which is always kind of interesting. Like if you get a lot of, I don't know, werewolves or <laughs> something very <laughs> random that everyone's writing about, all of a sudden it can be really fun to see what all these different people from across the world are kind of thinking about in their submissions. And so do you find that, because um, you write fiction too, obviously, so what do you, is your writing process any different? Like, obviously, the end result's different, but like in terms of how you go about it, um, is it any different between fiction and poetry? I think it is a little bit. Poetry always feels much more organic, kind of. Um, like, I can sit down and just really think about something and really focus on something for a poem. But with fiction, I feel like I'm all over the place. Like, it can take me a really long time to write just a short story. And I do a lot of research in both fiction and poetry, but with poetry, I think you can get away with some looser details a little bit if you're only sprinkling in historical references. But with fiction, you kind of really need to know what you're going to put in there because people will call you out, which is always <laughs> interesting to deal with. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think poetry is something I can really just get into the headspace for and it's almost a little bit more like a ritual that I can get into, but fiction, I have to really just isolate, put all my technology away, be in a quiet room. <laughs> it's much more involved for me at least. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. Some of that kind of actually relates to my next question. Um, so the poems you're going to read today come from two collections, um, Cradle Land of Parasites and The Devil's Dreamland. Uh, both take their cues from moments in history and specific historical figures. Um, so how does poetry inspire your writing? Sorry, how uh, does history inspire your writing in general and in poetry? Um, so I actually have an essay about historical horror and poetry coming out in mm -hmm. Writing Poetry in the Dark, which is edited by Stephanie Wytovich from Raw Dog Screaming Press. So um, that was a fun little essay to write, and I really got to kind of talk about how using these moments from history and poetry, it's almost like taking a little postcard from different time periods and sending it to yourself, and you can kind of pick the details that you want on that postcard and discard the things that aren't going to work for you as you tell your story, especially with a poem, because it's so much briefer than writing a story or a book. And... I mean, history is just full of so much horror, too. You don't really have to look very far to be inspired by things. And there's a lot of different events out there that probably aren't as focused on. So I think especially for people in different cultures, if you come to a country where they're not talking about events from your culture, then you could probably have even more to write about. Um, so there's definitely a lot of inspiration you can find out there. And yeah, I think there's just really weird little things in history that we always don't talk about or focus on. And you can really pluck those and turn them into a visceral little poem. Yeah, definitely. And I think that um, your poems definitely are. Um, it's, it's interesting, too. Like, it wasn't until I was doing my BA in English, actually, that it occurred to me that history is kind of a very specific storying of events and mm. um that those lenses you know like there are specific narratives being drawn out from nations right. depending on who's telling it you know and uh yeah. it's really interesting to me that you you take those threads of horror and write them in the poetic form that's really interesting to me um do you write historical fiction as well, or is it just mostly like poetry that inspires you with it? So I do a little bit in my fiction. I'm actually working on, I have some short stories where I did take things from like, um, I live in Pennsylvania in, in the U.S. And we have some weird history with like Dutch folk magic specifically, which is its mm. own whole thing. Um, so that was kind of fun to research. And then um I'm working on a novella right now that takes place during the gold rush in California. So that involved all kinds of research. Um, but it's it's definitely, I really like what you said about, you know, all these different little threads and how we're only told certain versions of history. So there's really so much to explore. 
for the novella that I'm working on, I really tried to research women specifically in the gold rush and how they were dealing with it's just this whole new thing. There would be like 180 men in a mining camp, but only like 25 women. So oh just God. really, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> like, that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> right. It's like, that's horror already. So just researching, like, how did these women survive? How did they get by? And um, there was like, of course, that was like a big start and boom for things like brothels or dancers and that kind of entertainment. And how were those women treated? So there's a lot to explore there. Yeah, that's so rich. And like, it's interesting because you can kind of see parallels in the present to that as well with like the different uh, oil and gas camps that exist in the Western part of the continent. And yeah, yeah just that there don't tend to be as many women employed in those industries. So it tends no. to be a disparity <laughs> there too. Yeah, that's a great, great point. It's it's interesting, like just yeah. I mean, I guess that's just like the relationship of land and economy coming together, and how that always um, gets complicated. And just yes. like the West <laughs> is kind of a mythic place. I can't. This is me saying I can't wait to read it. <laughs> I'm like building an article in my head already. <laughs> Thank you. I can't wait to finish it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, so I guess we can get into the first poem because I have more kind of history related questions um, specific to each of the ones that you sent. Sure. Um, so the first one is Princess Joan. You can go ahead whenever you're ready. All right. Um, so this first poem is from Cradleland of Parasite, which is mostly inspired by the um, bubonic plague. I have some other parasites and diseases in it too, but most of it's inspired by the Black Death. And this first one is called Princess Joan, and it is based off pretty much the true story of Princess Joan's life. Okay. So Princess Joan. Gown of red velvet royally wrapped around her body. Diamonds glittering as the procession takes her onward, toward marriage, toward union between England and Castile. Dear Princess, jewels will not save you from infection nor can 100 bowmen offer true protection. Daughter of Edward III, no stranger to the ruthlessness charisma can hide, but she holds her head high, fears nothing on this day, despite warnings from the townsfolk of disease drawing near. Dear princess, an entire ship needed for your dowry will not keep you from disease. In this matter more than deadly, stay home, we beg you, please. Too late. Your lethal timing cannot be stopped by fine enamel buttons, by patterns of shining stars and corsets, nor by embroidered roses or gold combs. No matter how beautiful you look, death still comes, dear Joan. The lion of your monarchy roars. One last time before sickness finds you, strikes the leader of your entourage dead sniffs you out like vermin seeking scraps because all is not well in Bordeaux. And the Black Death spares no mercy for royalty. Dear Princess, we begged you so, but you have come to die with us. Rest by the corpses piled on the dock. And in good faith you trust, but your body will not be shipped back in time to your broken father. You will burn with the villagers, fine wedding gown forgotten. For all skeletons look the same when remains become rotten. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, I loved all of the really tactile imagery in this poem and like how you really evoke the opulence of things using images like the red velvet and the embroidered roses and gold combs, um, among other items. Thank you. Um, yeah, and it's it's so intriguing with death like leveled as the great equalizer at the end. Um, yeah. yeah, that was it, a big a big theme in the, <laughs> during the Black Death. Like it will like it will get you no matter what level or status that you're that you're at. Yeah, it. Uh, thinking about the the tactile imagery, like it it feels almost like a a costume history poem as well as like a history in itself poem. <laughs> I um, love that. Was that something that you had in mind while I you were did. writing it? 
I didn't think about it that way, but I really like that you point that out. I just was so intrigued by like the details of her dresses when I was researching this princess because they were so opulent, so rich, so beautiful. And it's almost like, you know, these these wealthy people had these costumes that probably did feel like shields to them, like they're so high up with their jewels and everything. They probably felt like nothing could get them. So when they heard these rumors of a disease, they didn't care. (laughs) They still dressed up with their entourages and their ships and just went about their business. Wow, that's really, (laughs) you know, just like thinking about, of course, the, the historical moment we're in right now and thinking about that particular plague and just like how the different dynamics of society are the same and different <laughs> simultaneously. <Right>. Yeah. It's <laughs> horrifying. Yeah. It makes me think of what was it early in the pandemic? Like the Kardashians renting out that private Island <laughs> oh, and being oh like, God. Oh, <laughs> yeah. everybody quarantined. It's fine. And everyone was just like, what? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that part of what intrigued you about um, princess Joan is like one of the victims of the plague? I just thought her story was really sad. And I I wrote this before COVID, but it got published during COVID. So that was fun. (laughs) um, Yeah, but her story was just really sad and interesting. Like she was young, she was going to be married, she was excited. And this was supposed to be this great union to bring peace between these nations. But she didn't get very far, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it seems it's interesting. Like your poem really draws out this like kind of sense of like pomp and ceremony, right? Like <laughs> yeah, lot, yeah, just going on, and it's like oh okay, and then it's just like oh things go so drastically downhill, and then by the end, it's just like yeah, um, it's all the same in the end, right? <laughs> yeah, like, like, oh god, just... it's all for naught. <laughs> Yep, piled up the bodies by the dock and burned them. So <laughs> sorry, Princess Joan. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I love the imagery of the lion of the monarchy roaring and just like there's all this ferocity mixed in with it, but it's still just like that march toward death at the end. It's like it's yeah. so brutal. <laughs> it, it is brutal. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like the... Uh, the Black Death in particular was really a, a nasty disease. <laughs> right, right, um, very unforgiving. Yeah, I think, what was it? Yeah, I read um, a Journal of the Plague Year, ah. um, which was 1660, I think. So it was just like the resurgence of the plague in England, and it's a harrowing read. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like they just kept coming back every couple years, every couple hundred years. Like they, they really could not get away for a good three or 400 years. It's so terrifying to think about. Yes. <laughs> These generations of people, but I guess just epidemiologically speaking, like they were probably somewhat more used to pandemics back then, maybe. Maybe. And I mean, they didn't really, you know, think about, you know, germs were, that wasn't a thing. So, right. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. And I guess their people weren't really traveling as much or as widely as they are these days. So. Right. Yeah. Unless you were wealthy and on your way to go to war or marry someone. <laughs> marry someone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, poor Joan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um, It seems to really have that kind of uh, eagle-eyed view effect. So it's not, um, it's not like an anti-monarchy poem, but it's also (laughs) just like this didn't save you. (laughs) There was no way it would have saved you. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. And I definitely wanted to have some empathy in this poem for this girl. So didn't want it to be all shame, shame on right. the poor <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and that, that really emphasizes the horror too, right? It's just like yeah. thinking about people even just trying to get married, not being able to. Um, right. And like she probably was, you know, this was arranged since childhood or birth. So this was 
probably always going to be her fate. Right. That's interesting. Um, do you want to move on to Memento Mori? Sure. All right. So Memento Mori. Remember that you will die. Don your darkest clothes or your brightest, whatever brings you peace, as we practice the art of mourning. Seek salvation for your soul. Reflect upon your goodness, your sins. See here the way art changed after great pestilence. How paintings depict villagers staring death straight in the face. How they pull their sleeves away from the grip of demons. To live and die well. You may show your face to the world. A statue on one side reflecting wealth. Smiles and fine clothes. But on the back, finis. The end, reflecting only skeletal grins, a corpse drowning in frogs, worms, slithering salamanders seeking nutrients from your body, your mortality. Remember that you will die so that you do not forget to live. Wow, <laughs> that's so powerful. <laughs> um, it feels like a tapestry, like um, Ooh, I like yeah, it, it's almost like, well, it's like a, a process of medieval or renaissance art that picks <laughs> the plague and your vivid descriptions, like it really invokes the memento mori as an art style. Um, yeah, I definitely looked at a lot of art when I was researching this collection, so that makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was my question. Like, were you inspired by the art to write the collection or was that something you came across in your research? I think I came across that as I was getting started because I'm definitely drawn to visuals. I'm a visual learner. So coming across all the um, like the dance macabre art that came out of the, the Black Plague was really interesting because like the idea of the memento mori had been around for far before the 1300s, which was when we saw the Black Plague the most. Um, but the dance macabre really came kind of after because these people just were so used to death. So <laughs> they had all this art and music and paintings and just stories that they would tell that just constantly involved like this grim reaper figure. Um, so I think it was kind of a way for them to prepare themselves for death because they were just so used to it and to plagues. And that was, you know, death seemed to get them pretty early and pretty young. So it was really interesting to look up some of the dance macabre art that came after the plague yeah that's interesting because there's like that acceptance built into it um that you emphasize here but also like there's kind of a bit of a joy to it like the line to live and die well you may show your face to the world like mm -hmm. that being present is really important yeah. to this memento mori process that you've drawn out here yeah, I think so. And I'm sure even back then they probably, you know, <laughs> were trying to live the best that they could, but they may have only been to like age 25. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my goodness. <laughs> 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 yeah, I guess, yeah, that would make um, acceptance of death really, really important. Um, yeah. And I guess you see that in... Um, well, I guess the film The Green Knight really played with that too. And did it? I haven't seen it yet, but I've I've read it, but <laughs> Oh well I won't spoil it. <laughs> it. It's it's pretty yeah, I thought it did a good job of drawing out the text. Um It looked it looked beautiful just from the trailer, so I really need to get on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say it's worth it. I, I was overjoyed when it came out in the theaters. So. Yay. It was my first COVID movie, so. Yeah. Oh, yay! That's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's so sorry. <laughs> it's so distractible today. Um, yeah, so it was interesting to me how you brought that all together, like to almost depict um, a piece of art. Yeah. And I, th I think it really kind of comments on the relationship of art to how we think about history and um i when when did it come out was it the first year of the pandemic 
this book, oh gosh, I think it was 2020, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, so that's what I read it, and I was just like, oh God, like. (laughs) Yeah, like I was like, oh, (laughs) not intentional. Well, it was really, yeah, it was really impactful. Um, And it it wasn't a bad experience by any means, like it, it was enjoyable the way that reading good horror poetry is enjoyable um (laughs) good to know (laughs) but it was it was disturbing too like um different elements of parasites that you bring out in the collection I was just like oh god (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot out there if you wanted to do like even just a modern version I don't think I could write about like COVID like this though I that's too it's Mm -hmm. still ongoing so that would just be too much to process yeah some of that historical distancing is necessary and also just the like unknowability of it back then for them, I guess, you know, like just these people giving their best guesses as to how to treat it. Um, Right. Right. And they treated it in terrible ways, but (laughs) what they thought they had to do, drain all the, drain the bad blood and things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So do you feel like the collection was you know like prescient at all do you has your relationship to it changed have having had it come out during covid i i don't know i i i had fun writing it because i liked doing the historical parts and i think i did hear back from a couple other people that said um kind of what you said too like it was it was fine it was fine to read it it wasn't too scary (laughs) it was just like oh maybe you can relate to this during this time period of covid um, but then I also did have a couple other people that were like, I'm going to have to come back to this in a year or two. <laughs> like, fair. That's, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a certain catharsis, I think. And that that's something that comes through, I think, for just horror fans in general. You know, it's just like sometimes mm-hmm. you want something that comments on a difficulty that you're experiencing or have experienced. Yes, for sure. I was definitely hungry for that stuff in the first year of the pandemic. So it's like just to, I guess, kind of normalize and domesticate the ideas. Yeah. Scary. Right. Right. And then when you have something that just keeps going, (laughs) like, what do we read now? (laughs) Yeah. Like, well, now it's time to diversify it. (laughs) Read some stuff that isn't about plagues. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) But I leaned heavily into it at the beginning. So. Yeah, yeah. And I know I didn't read Paul Tremblay's book yet, but I think Survivor Song was a plague book too. And it came out around then as well. Oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Like as someone who's interested in apocalypses too, like I know that for a long time there was kind of like this doom saying that was like, oh, it's probably going to be, you know, a a terrible virus that wipes us all (laughs) out. Right, and right, and there's still like that fear sometimes, like oh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, especially you know with things like monkeypox coming out. Just oh like, my oh, gosh, God. what the yeah. hell? <laughs> yeah, and like some of it being fueled by climate change. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make everyone feel doomy, but <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is um, <laughs> the horror writers talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you have any of that in mind when you were kind of looking at? The Black Plague? Were you thinking about what was then, you know, kind of projections of different viruses that might come into being? It was it was really interesting reading about um like what people thought the virus was at the time because they didn't know it was a virus, but um there was a lot of like religious interpretations where the townspeople would just view it as like oh we're full of sin this is god killing us and then they would have religious people would go through the towns and like whip themselves to show punishment show like this is what you should be doing (laughs) which was horrifying too and then there's i think the theory that people most there's like kind of the most data for is that the plague originated from warfare too so that's really interesting to get into as well so just knowing that they didn't know what it was either, and they were just trying to make sense of it, of this disease, where it came from, why all these horrible things were happening was something that I think I've reflected a lot after finishing the book and living in these days and times now. So 
it's definitely something that they're, I can keep coming back to with reflection, whether that's good or bad. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, what's interesting about like history in general, but also stuff that's written based on history, like, Mm -hmm. like your collection. Cause you know, um, in the same way that history can get contextualized and recontextualized, the way that we make art about it can too, depending on what transpires in the meantime and what we learn. Yeah, and like art's already so subjective to begin with. So as, oh yeah, like you said, as our knowledge changes, then all that interpretation can change too, which which makes it really interesting to be a writer, knowing that everything's so fluid and you can write something one way and then it's interpreted in all these other ways. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> yes, I was predicting the future, actually. <laughs> yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, you know, yeah, that's some of the fun of, the risk that comes with writing too because you just write something and people will interpret it as like oh yeah that's not what I meant but okay <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> right yeah if it like makes you sound like like a genius sure but then when it's like, a terrible interpretation like no yeah. <laughs> I'm just like oh okay <laughs> yep <laughs> awesome okay so do you want to move on to the poems from um what's it called again Devil's Dreamland. Devil's Dreamland. Thank you. All right. So on my page. All right. So the Devil's Dreamland is poetry inspired by serial killer H.H. Holmes, who was serial killer in Chicago and maybe some other states in the late 1800s. And I'm going to read a poem from... It's called Chicago Part One. So I have the book split up into different kind of sections of H.H. Holmes' life. And I thought I would also read a quote from H.H. Holmes. And this was a quote that he put in his kind of own prison diary. So Holmes wrote, Later, like the man-eating tiger of the tropical jungle, whose appetite for blood has once been aroused, I roamed about the world seeking whom I could destroy. And with that, here is my poem, The Kiln. At night, after the stores close, after stars attempt to blink between ashen clouds, the strange doctor builds something, something hungry inside crooked architecture, atrociously macabre. What's in his basement? Chicago swallows starlight. The plague of a man stays down below the earth. What's in his basement? He says, good night, tenant, good night, wife, good night, mistress, and hello to the firelight. Where he sits like a pyro-hungry piranha, listening to colorless flames, an invisible reaper, instructing, seducing, slithering deep inside the doctor man. He unbuttons his shirt holds his arms out wide, embracing his monstrosity made from ruddy bricks. And what is it there inside his basement? Heat emits from a cavernous mouth, blistering enough to melt iron inside brick jaws. Is this man the devil or a minion trading flesh for secrets? The kiln sings for him, crude oil mouth, mating with death. Delivering steam and atoms from the ashes inside its belly. Not even bones remain. Just a man's coat hanging upstairs in the parlor. Just a woman's dress in her trunk, worn only by ghosts now. Bodies without skin, without skeletons. Flaking bits of dust, tarred human husks. In the doctor's basement. In the devil's kiln. What else is he building in there? Thank you. Oh, my God, that's so chilly. (laughs) (laughs) This poem, like, it has such an interesting play with light and shadow. Um, There's a repeated imagery of stars and night, and, of course, like, the colorless flame and the cavernous mouth imagery. Um, What made you want to use images like that, looking at H.H. Holmes? Oh, gosh, so he is he's kind of known for having this murder castle it was really just this very 
big, ugly building in Chicago that he kept adding to. And I've seen some drawings of it from that time, or at least what I think it would look like. And it is just this kind of like looming thing. And I kept picturing it in the night with like some of the lights on and maybe some fire from the basement kind of glowing in the windows and things like that. And especially like Chicago at that time was known as the White City. So there's all this contrast of how they were trying to make the city clean and pretty for the World's Fair that was coming. Yet H.H. Holmes was there (laughs) killing people, burning people, (laughs) doing things like that. So just kind of thinking about all those contrasts, I think, really inspired a lot of the images in this collection. Yeah. And there's like, like the furnace imagery which is really interesting um, just because like there's all this invocation of the devil around him. So there's like these flames and the devil imagery. Do you want to speak to that at all? Sure. So in one of his prison memoirs, he does start to write about how he feels like basically like there's another being growing inside of him. And he he calls it the evil one, if I'm remembering correctly, when he refers to it in his writing. So he kind of literally imagined himself turning into a devil-like figure. So (laughs) when you have the person you're writing about writing these things, it definitely is a rich place to uh, take inspiration from as a horror writer. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And just, like, unabashedly doing this evil. (laughs) Yeah. Like, he and he was strange to research too because he wrote um but he killed all these people that were later found alive so no one's really sure how many people he actually did kill so it's just he's a very bizarre kind of serial killer no one is really sure how many people actually were his victims i did not know that that's fascinating yeah very very weird man (laughs) did he have them locked away is that how they turned um, up alive or no he just like I think he wrote that he he confessed to killing 27 people and some of them were found just alive like in their houses wandering town <laughs> like <laughs> so easily debunked why would he do that <laughs> no like it was it's very strange and then there were definitely like a lot of women that did disappear after knowing him so we know we killed some people but it it could range anywhere from like two to 200, like the data trying to pinpoint what he actually did is just non-existent. That's fascinating. And like, it just occurred to me now looking at home again, like that contrast and the devil thing, like it comes together to really be like a contemporary Gothic, you know, like that's the Gothic castle and that's like, yeah, the figure stalking it. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That's funny you say that, though. Um, Robert Block has a book called American Gothic, and it's basically about an H.H. H. Holmes figure. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, an, it's a good little book. I forget. He names his serial killer like G.G. something. Like, it's very derivative of Holmes. Oh, interesting. I'll have to pick yeah. it up. Yeah. Um, another thing that I noticed in the poem is that it was really striking that you repeat the questions um, and just having the presence of questions in the poem over and over again. Um, it kind of gives an overall effect of like switching between interrogation and disbelief mm-hmm. and it builds a really deep sense of dread by the end. Um, what was behind your decision to add those questions? I really like to play with point of view with poetry and I kind of just liked this idea of giving this kind of pan over and looking at what Holmes was doing, but also just imagining what else could he be doing. So I thought it was just kind of fun as a writer to play with that form and ask those questions. Yeah, he definitely like, you get a sense, again, that kind of like bird's eye view is just like you're seeing uh, the horrors transpiring in this place and you just like, trying to make sense of it and it's interesting that you know making art about a figure like this is also like still trying to make sense of what happened yeah absolutely like it's just it's such a puzzle so 
it's definitely an interesting thing to work with as a writer when you have just enough information to work with and make it creepy and make it your own, but there's still kind of this sense of discovery to be had. And what was it about H.H. Holmes specifically that intrigued you? I think just definitely that mystery of who was this guy? Why did he do what he do? There really isn't a lot of evidence to back up that he killed because he likes to kill. A lot of it seems to have been based um, monetarily and getting money, um, just adding to his wealth and paying off a lot of debt collectors. He didn't pay a lot of his workers who built his kind of castle home for him. So a lot of times the women that he interacted with were women that had money or women that he could gain something from, like um, land, for example, if they had deeds to land. So just kind of that perspective, too, made him a little unusual. And also there wasn't any poetry about him. So I'm like, hmm, that might be an interesting way to to write about a serial killer. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting because looking at the quote that you gave at the beginning of his um it makes it sound like he's very uh method methodological like he's really uh staking and stalking and um, yeah yeah no he was he was very literate like the prison memoir he wrote um it's free to read on the library of congress website and everything he writes is like really idyllic like it's really just over the top literate all these pictures that he paints so and of course every single word could be a lie so it's interesting to read all that stuff that he actually wrote yeah it's interesting that he compares himself to the man-eating tiger in the quote (laughs) in in the jungle because it's like you're in chicago my dude (laughs) (laughs) it's such a specific image too i'm like what went through this man's head (laughs) yeah like that's such an interesting contrast I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It seems like he he contradicts himself. And it's interesting just learning all this from you about him. um, That that also contributes to like the contrast that you're building in this poem. It's just like there's this light and dark like this man who's very uh, well read and good at writing. <laughs> right, right. He, horrible acts. <laughs> right. And he actually did finish like his degrees to become a doctor. He went through college and that's very unusual for a serial killer to finish schooling like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we could move on to Holmes versus the Ripper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so this one is Holmes versus the Ripper, part one. November 1888, cold metallic tang of blood billows up in the atmosphere, hovering, haunting, crimson pollution in Victorian streets. Slightly after the witching hour, a woman cries murder. Violence is nothing new here. Neighbors turn away, shut their ears, slicing off sound as he slices off a woman's breast. Around 10.45 a.m., a landlord goes to collect rent. Mary Kelly's is overdue. She doesn't open the door. Blood smears the broken window. Mary Kelly is nothing more than a gumbo-stewed organ soup, scarlet flesh pile skinned down and humanly carved up on the bed a massacre of mutilation. There will come a debate after this. Was she truly the Ripper's last? Are the following Whitechapel murders his or someone else's? At this stillborn, chilled moment, Jack remains the most brutal servant of the devil. At this stillborn, chilled moment, H.H. Holmes hears backward whispers slithering into his small ears. You can do better. You can do better. Ah. (laughs) 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 So creepy. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
obviously the question at the top of my head is like why Holmes versus the Ripper? Is this true? Did this really happen? <laughs> That's a couple questions. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, all right. So this was really inspired by, I guess, two things. One was just that H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper were around at the same time period, which is just kind of interesting. And then the second one, there's all these shows and papers that are like, Holmes was Jack the Ripper, and I hate them. <laughs> Theory drives me bananas. <laughs> so I really wanted to do this kind of fun, if you're a sick person, a fun kind of poem <laughs> about, like, what would it be like if H.H. H. Holmes picked up a paper and read about Jack the Ripper's murders? Like, that could have happened. The time period lines up that um, that would have been in the papers around then. So that just kind of inspired these Holmes versus the Ripper poems. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so <laughs> didn't actually happen, but could have happened. It could have. We don't know, but it's very likely that if that was in the paper that, you know, a serial killer would probably be reading about another killer's crimes. That's so interesting. Because, I don't know, like, for some reason, even though, like, when I read this, I was like, oh, yeah, they existed at the same time. But it's just like, <laughs> in all of my time of thinking about them, like knowing about them for decades, like it never occurred to me that they might know about each other because it's just like so yes. separate. I don't Ooh. know. That's, <laughs> it's another part of the way we think about history, right? It's just like, well, that happened in England and that mm -hmm. happened in America. So obviously there's no way they could have known about each other. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it feels like it feels like their worlds apart that way because, like, we have such a movie kind of depiction of things like Jack the Ripper, but not really as much with H. H. Holmes. So they they feel like they didn't exist at the same time at all with with the way pop culture portrays them. I guess. <gasps> yeah, that's interesting. I actually, you're right. Now that I'm thinking about it, like, I haven't seen that much pop culture about H. H. Holmes. Yeah, Why do you think, think that is? Well, right now I keep hearing about, I think Scorsese's producing something with um, Keanu Reeves. So for The Devil in the White City, Eric Larson's book. So maybe we'll get get something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah. I think it'd be really interesting. I like that book and it's a really good kind of book to get into if you want the context of the homes in Chicago and the World's Fair. But there isn't a lot about H.H. Holmes in that book. So I'm really curious what they do and if anyone hears this they should hire me to consult about H.H. H. Holmes. Yes. <laughs> yeah oh that's fascinating. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting about your choice to like juxtapose these two people is like um, some of the things that you do in the poem like uh, the repetition and your use of alliteration like the massacre of mutilation repeated red imagery of scarlet and crimson and blood and um, the ending repetition of stillborn um, makes it feel like you're making a very deliberate point about violence against women. Um, what was going on with those choices? Were you trying to make a statement about that? I definitely wanted it to kind of have a mirroring effect, like, cause we're kind of comparing what Holmes is doing, what the Ripper is doing. And so I think the repetition is a really good way to show something that's mirroring. And throughout the devil's dreamland, I really did try to give the women some agency. Like I do have some poems from the point of view of the women who may have been Holmes as victims and just tried to show that they existed, show that they were real people that he did horrible things to. Um, so I think with this one too, it's kind of a comparison of, the very horrible and notorious thing that happened to Mary Kelly and how just visceral Jack the Ripper was with his victims. And that was very different from how Holmes killed his victims. He was much more like clinical about it. Like he wasn't really touching them as much. Like Jack the Ripper seemed to be kind of all up in the organs, but Holmes seemed to favor things like, poison or gassing the victims and things like that so it was just kind of interesting to compare um one of the reasons why I don't think they could have ever been the same person was just how different they were in this in the murders 
very different to be like that physical with the, the body, I think, the victim or a corpse, than Holmes's way of kind of doing it cleanly, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that's really interesting because I guess that harkens back to like his um man-eating tiger imagery where it's just like he's stalking <laughs> his prey, whereas you know, the ripper's ripping them up, you know, right. like it's yeah, that's really interesting. So, do you think that that's kind of like behind the "you can do better" is just like that clinical application of killing? I think it could be for Holmes too. Like, just I feel like he probably wouldn't be impressed with the messiness that comes with Jack the Ripper. Like everything Holmes did was so strategic and planned. With every, even the buildings that he had constructed, it was very much plotted, outlined. He knew where exactly he wanted to put things. And he did the same thing when he was kind of starting to go on the run. He went down to, I think it was Texas, if I'm remembering correctly. And he was going to start building like another murder castle, basically another hotel. Um, but those plans didn't come through and he had to actually go on the run. So even with when he was fleeing from the people pursuing him, he was very strategic on where he would be, who he would be with. And things like that. So imagine if I was H.H. Holmes and I was reading about Jack the Ripper in the paper, I would probably think that I was smarter than what this man was doing. So maybe think about it in that way. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting because it seems like, like Jack the Ripper is so much more animalistic. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm sorry if you just heard my straw noise. <laughs> no, water. that's okay. <laughs> It's summertime. The listeners have to deal with fans if they hear them, with straws. Yep, we're we're being hydrated and cool on this show. We're, we're trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, that was all of my questions. Was there anything that you wanted to cover in the interview about either collection? Or both? I don't think so. I feel like your questions were great. So I really oh, enjoyed <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> I could do this all day. <laughs> I love talking about horror poetry. It's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming on. Was there anything you wanted to promote before we wrap up? Sure. I guess I'll just let... We are, we did talk about chromophobia. I'm going to talk about it again just to let people know that chromophobia is out. You can buy it pretty much wherever books are sold right now. We have amazing stories like tips and lots of different colors that are tackled. I think it's a very interesting anthology and I hope that people support it. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. Thanks everybody. See you next time.